So if you turn your Bibles to Colossians 1, that's where we'll be this morning and a little bit of the afternoon. Colossians 1. Every sport has its basic patterns that athletes endeavor to get back to when in a slump. In fact, many of our American sport movies present the hero struggling with some difficulty, introduce a new coach who focuses the athlete upon the fundamentals of the sport, often steering him or her away from the clout that was theirs in their glory days. And building upon the basics, the hero once again claims victory. Well, in our physical life, I've learned that some of the fundamentals and basics uh, are really applied to our breathing habits, our breathing patterns. Learn that whether it's in lifting. I remember a dear friend here, Casey Stevens, trying to help me with lifting, and I would try to push it out and hold my breath, and he said, you're going to pop something. You've got to take in and exhale. Remember that in pitching or running, the need to breathe properly. Some of you have delivered babies. Uh, I've been there for a few, not been involved um, per se, but breathing is very important. Helping our wives to breathe is important. Hyperventilating can be very destructive. This week, my family, or the last few weeks, have been down with some kind of bronchial thing. So breathing has been very interesting. I was sitting out in the heat on Friday, and uh, it was about 100 degrees or so, and I'm sitting there, and I'm noticing my hands are turning white and pale and cold, and it's starting to move up my arm to my elbow. <laughs> like, what is going on? Robin, uh, can you feel this? It's, just, it's cold. It's like death. <laughs> It's great encouraging. I need to get out of the 100-degree heat, and, and so I did. Um, I called a, my brother-in-law, who's a medic, and he said, yes, when uh, your body's struggling to breathe, it's going to shut down the things that are not as important, like your fingers and your toes, to take care of what it needs to take care of. Breathing's important, getting back to the basics. Sometimes it's frustrating. I remember a number of years ago, my wife was dealing with uh, anemia, where it's a condition in which the body does not have enough red blood cells to carry the oxygen to the body tissue. And so we went to a doctor to deal with this issue of oxygen, and he said, well, she's a mother of three. Her husband's working full-time and going to school. What do you expect? She needs to see a psychologist. That would help her out. I'm going, are you kidding? You're going to try to give us a method, somebody's behavioral patterns, behavioral thinking to help an oxygen issue? It was very discouraging, needless to say. We found another doctor. But I think as believers, sometimes we struggle with that very thing. We want to help each other out in conflict, trials, and suffering. And as believers, we understand, we begin to grasp the reality of the basics of the gospel, that it is more than just getting into the Christian life, but it is God's power unto salvation, Romans 1.16 says, which includes justification, the fact that we're declared righteous in Christ, but also our sanctification, our Christian growth and glorification really comes out of the gospel. It's difficult when someone in a conflict comes and a believer sits down and says, let's go through the gospel. Because one, that is often a question of somebody's integrity in our evangelical culture. Are you saying that I don't get the gospel? I just preached it to you. Or two, it's considered as you don't want anything to do with the situation. You're just avoiding the issue. And sometimes it's seen in a hurtful way. But when we understand the priority of the gospel, we see it as a great encouragement and comfort in the midst of suffering. The basics, the breathing patterns, if you will. In fact, this is the approach that the Apostle Paul takes in the book of Galatians, Ephesians, and in our book today, Colossians. And I'd like to introduce you to that. So in fact, what I'm going to do is give you a broad view of Colossians, then we'll step back into Colossians 1, and we'll look at 1 through 8 together. But for the broad view, I want you to see Paul's strategy in dealing with conflict. How does he deal with it? Turn to chapter 2, verse 16. Now, we're going to cheat a little bit, because we're going to look at the middle of the book. But that's not how Paul begins it. We often think when there's a problem, difficulty, trial, or issue of personal suffering, just give me the how-to. Give me the method. I remember someone saying to me, Chris, if you could just help my spouse live the way you do with your wife, to treat her in an understanding way. And I said, well, the difficulty with that is the gospel prepares my heart, brings me low, so I recognize who Christ is, and then I want to serve my wife 
and put on 1 Peter 3 to live with her in an understanding way. So I've studied my wife and learned about her strengths and weaknesses and how I can compliment her for the sake of the gospel. But for me to do that to your spouse would be to teach him how to love my wife, and that would not be appropriate. You see the difficulty it gets us into, the how-to list. What we need is the gospel, and from the gospel is birthed life. Even walking like Christ comes out of the gospel. And that's how Paul begins Colossians. He doesn't start with the problem and then give us the list, the how-to. He starts with the gospel. But we're going to skip. I want you to see the, the, the issue, the conflict that Paul's dealing with in the Colossian church. Look with me at chapter 2, verse 16. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance, the meaning, the depth belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you. And how would they do that, Paul? Insisting on asceticism. That's separation. We see that a lot with conflict, right? Avoidance. I can't deal with this situation. I'm going to separate. We see it in marriages. We see it in family relationships between parents and children, coworkers. We're saying they're the problem. If I could separate, then we'll deal with it. Well, in biblical terminology, that was called asceticism, to separate from things we felt were the real evil. He says that's not it. That's a way to disqualify us. And worship of angels going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. That would be mysticism. There's realities that we concoct within ourselves, self-inventions, self-thinking. We often see it in our self-experience. I had a pastoral situation in which someone said, you know, I've studied my spouse's habits. Day in and day out, I know what he's thinking and what he's doing. I said, that presents a problem. You're going to trust in your self-experience then. And what if the gospel begins to change your spouse's life? You won't see it because you're going to trust what you know about him in the past. And it's pretty limiting. The self-experience is not sovereign because we're not omniscient, omnipresent. We're not qualified to be God. It's disqualifying. Verse 19, and not holding fast to the head, that would be Christ, from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with a growth that is from God. There's where the substance is. Christ is the head. We feed off of him. We're nourished by him. Verse 20, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, that's a term used of human reasoning, human thinking, human principles. Why is if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. This is another strategy against the flesh. Well, if I can't separate from it, if I can't use my self-experience to deal with it, then I'll come up with a list. We call it legalism, my 12-step plan. Don't handle, don't taste, don't touch. And I'll hold everyone else to this plan. Verse 23. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. You can physically go after the flesh, restrain it, put it behind bars, use a list. It does not have power over the flesh. That's human thinking, things that are perishing. So that's the problem. That's what Paul deals with in Colossians. So what's his strategy? I mean, right now I'm going, wow, I see some of this this week that I've trusted in. Oh, I was struggling with that issue. I'm going to separate. Oh, well, here's my plan. My don't handle, don't taste, don't touch. How does Paul start? Well, he doesn't start as he does in chapter 3, verse 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. Verse 8, you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Don't lie to one another. He doesn't begin with the list. We typically memorize these verses, right? I'll put them on the mirror. Don't lie or don't be angry. Don't hold to malice. It's my list, my checklist. If I can memorize this, tell myself not to do this and do this, maybe I can motivate obedience. Paul doesn't start there. Often we are guilty as parents of starting that with our kids. Here's the issue. I'm going to constrain that. Then I'm going to give you the list. This is what you should be doing. Now, obviously, the, the list is not bad in the sense of put off, put on, don't be angry. But you see, it flows out of the gospel. That's where, that's where the power lies. 
If we just begin with, oh, here's my flesh struggling with this personal relationship, this conflict, and I'm just going to try to buster it up to not be angry, not slander, don't lie, put on Christ, I'm, I'm still in the flesh. I'm still using my flesh to deal with the conflict. Paul doesn't start there. Why? Because the issue of my, when I find myself angry or malice or bitterness creeping into my heart, I have a, a supremacy problem. I have a, a misperspective of life. I'm interpreting meaning from myself. I believe that, that everything revolves around me. And I, I need my priorities reshaped. I need my vision checked. I need a new lens to look through life. And that's where the gospel comes into play. Let's trace how Paul deals with the gospel, and we'll again do it from a 30,000-foot overview. He interweaves the gospel in and out of the book of Colossians. In chapters 1 through 14, he underlines the priority of the gospel. See it in verse 5 of chapter 1. He says, Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you've heard before, in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and growing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. So this gospel work is seen as not that which is just stagnant, but is dynamic, it is fruitful, and it is growing from the day the believers heard and understood it. He then moves us in verse 15 and 16. Well, let's read it. Uh, Verse 16, go there with me. He is now, after giving us the gospel, which he promotes in 13 and 14, redemption in Christ... He then underlines the supremacy of Christ. The gospel is preparing us to see Christ's supremacy because that's our problem. We don't see it when we're in sin. Verse 16, For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, underlining the crosswork of Christ, that in everything he might be preeminent. Do you see that? He's supreme. He's above all things. The fullness of deity dwells in him. He created the visible and the invisible. There is nothing in this life that can hold a candle to the glory and supremacy of Jesus Christ. And we need to get that. And for that reason, we need the gospel to be reminded of Christ's supremacy. But verse 18 tells us that we don't see all things bowing to his preeminence. And so we see the gospel again. He says in verse 18, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Well, he deserves to be because verse 19 says the fullness of deity was pleased to dwell in him. Paul understands before we are even the right mindset, the right place to deal with our flesh, we first need the gospel. And the gospel must, must promote the supremacy of Jesus Christ to our hearts. It is then in chapter 2 that he underlines, if you would, drop down to verse 7. Chapter 2, we'll, we'll start back with verse 6. There's a lot of therefores in this book connecting us from the gospel and the supremacy of Christ to the issue at hand that needs to be dealt with. Chapter 2, verse 6. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus, the Lord so walk in him, rooted, built up in him, established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you've been filled in him who is the head over all rule and authority. Again, he reminds us of who Christ is, warns us against the philosophy, the worldviews of the world. What are worldviews? It tries to interpret reality in light of someone's lens, a human lens. Colossians, Paul says, we need the gospel to interpret life from Christ's worldview. And since he is before all things, and he's the creator of all things, all things are for him. We need this. Because in a marriage conflict, or a family conflict, or work, what is its meaning? What is its purpose? The gospel would have us understand that in Christ we understand life's meaning 
life's purpose. But to see it, we need the gospel. So when I find myself in chapter 2, 16 through 23, struggling with my flesh, using my moralism, quit doing that, here's my tactic. And then I see that my malice and bitterness begins to flare up in my heart. I'm upset, plain self-sovereign. The gospel reminds me, Chris, you've been declaring your supremacy. Look to Christ. Look to his supremacy. And that's where Paul wants us. So if you would, let's look at five gospel fundamentals. We'll go back to Colossians 1. Five gospel fundamentals, breathing habits, if you will, that characterize the ministry of the gospel, the ministry of the gospel. Now, to have you understand that this is gospel-saturated, look again with me at chapter 1, 5, and 6. He's going to talk about faith and love and hope and truth and fruitfulness. But it's birthed in the context and the sphere of the gospel. Again, chapter 1, verse 5. Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you've heard before in the word of truth, the gospel which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and growing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. This is gospel saturated. He's reminding us that these fundamentals work out of the gospel. Well, what's the first one? The gospel secures faith in Christ. Faith in Christ. As I said the first hour, we'll, we'll focus about 10, 15 minutes on faith. In other words, we're taking up the lens of faith and we're looking through verses 1 through 8 from this lens because it's out of faith in Christ that we understand love, hope, fruitfulness, and the truth of God's word. And then we'll go back and we'll look at the other four points and we'll do them pretty briefly. So the first one is this, secures faith in Christ. I'll preview them for you. We'll spend a little time there. Then love for Christ's church, secures love for Christ's church. We see that again in verse 4. In verse 5, it secures hope in Christ's work. Hope in Christ's work. Number 4, it secures truth in Christ's word. We see that again in verse 5 under the word of truth. It secures truth in Christ's word. And then 5, secures fruit in Christ's ministry. It secures fruit in Christ's ministry. Let's look at the first one. Faith in Christ. See that again in verse 3 and 4. We always... Thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. Now, we don't want to miss the title Lord. It is joined together with the fact that God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and so Lord and God are paralleled as titles. The Father and Jesus are paralleled. Lord is often used in the New Testament, kurios, to describe not only lordship as in mastership, but also deity. It's used to translate the Hebrew word Yahweh a number of times in Pauline epistles, declaring the lordship, the deity of Christ. This is who we cling to by faith when we talk about believing or having faith in Christ or trusting in his lordship, particularly his deity, his person, the God-man. The gospel then grounds faith in Christ. Now, let's look at a couple of descriptions of this faith by taking up the next few verses and, and looking at it, as, at it as a lens through as we examine faith. What does this faith look like? What does it act like? Well, from the context of the surrounding verses, particularly verse 4, we might say that it is a loving, confident faith. A loving, confident faith that the gospel produces. We see this because in verse 4, we're, we're, we see that this love that comes out of the faith in Christ Jesus blossoms forth to believers, to the saints. We also note in verse 5 that this faith that's in Christ is rooted in a hope that is laid up for you in heaven. So it is a loving, confident faith, a faith that looks upward to Christ, a hope that's secured in heaven. It is a living faith. We note that in verse 6, that it is fruitful, fruit-bearing. It is not stagnant and dead. It is alive. Why? Because of the gospel. The gospel, by the way, according to Scripture, produces this faith in Christ. It is the ministry of the word of Christ to grant saving faith. And we see there in verse 4 again, notice the sphere of this faith is in Christ Jesus. I appreciate Peter O'Brien in his commentary in Colossians says this, 
The faith of the Colossians is naturally mentioned first, for apart from it, there'd be no Christian experience. This faith is in Christ Jesus, an expression which indicates the sphere in which faith lives and acts. The Colossian Christians live under the lordship of Christ Jesus, for they have been incorporated into him. You think of a greenhouse in which the plants thrive in that environment, in the sphere of that environment, and find sustenance in life. The right amount of sun, the needs for the soil. So Christ is the sphere in which we believe and trust in. Romans 10, 17 says, Faith comes from hearing, hearing by the word of Christ. 1 Peter 1, 23 through 25 says that we're born again by the living word. That's where birth happens. In 1 Thessalonians 1, we see a little picture of this. The Holy Spirit is seen as one who brings the gospel to us. So the gospel can be, if you will, personified as that which visits us, comes to us, and brings conviction. In fact, in verse 6 of Colossians 1, Paul uses the same language of the gospel. He says, which has come to you. It's made a personal visit. And according to Scripture, it's the Holy Spirit's work through the gospel that brings and births faith. It births faith. And this is why this gospel produces a loving, confident, living faith. Hendrickson, William Hendrickson, writes this. With faith in Christ Jesus, he associates love for all the saints. These two always go together, for faith is every operating through love. Galatians 5, 6. The same magnet, Christ Jesus, who attracts sinners to himself and changes them into saints, simultaneously draws them into closer fellowship with each other. Faith in Christ. And what does that look like? A loving faith to the saints. A hope-filled faith, a confident faith in Christ. A living faith. Now notice in verse 4 of Colossians 1, he says, your faith. And this guards us against an erroneous thinking that somehow God believes for us. There are some that have concluded that we shouldn't preach a gospel that says, you repent, you believe. Spurgeon fought against that in his day and age of preaching. The Bible calls for personal repentance, personal faith. Acts 17.30, Paul reminds us that God commands everyone, all people, to repent for a day of judgment is coming. So there's a responsibility that God commands all to repent. But responsibility does not equal ability. Adam and Eve were created dependent upon God, believing in God's word. And yet when they fell, they plunged humanity into deadness of sin. So that the responsibility is still there to believe, but the ability is gone So where might we find the ability? And that is found in what we call, the Bible calls, regeneration. A new birth. A new creation. And the Bible connects that to the gospel ministry. 2 Corinthians 4 describes this gospel as coming forth and compares it to to God who spoke light out of darkness. And so in the same way, as God created light out of darkness, just by the power of his word, so he speaks to the dead soul and commands light out of darkness, speaks forth the glory of Christ to an unbelieving dark heart. And through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, new birth, faith in Christ blossoms forth. Now this is the unbeliever's perspective for the believer too. Faith is fostered. Underneath the ministry of the gospel, we saw that in verse 5 and 6, where it bears fruitfulness. So you ask, how might my faith increase? Chris, when I'm, when I'm struggling with the issues of the flesh, with the trials of the flesh, with the turmoils of suffering, and then I respond in lust or bitterness or, or malice or hatred, how might I deal with it? We have a supremacy problem. We need the gospel. Because there in the gospel... Or is Christ promoted? And in the sphere of Christ, does faith grow? Brothers and sisters, that's why we can never assume the gospel. 
We can never get beyond the gospel. Just as Robin and I were frustrated that the doctor wanted to get beyond the issues of the breathing problems and the oxygen issues and move us into a list of how-tos. Don't give us Freud or Skinner to help with behavioral thinking. Help me with the problem. And that's what Paul addresses spiritually. Now, why is this faith characterizes loving, living, and confident in its relationship toward Christ? Well, Paul wraps up this issue in verse 27 of chapter 1 and really helps us see the glories of Christ. That in the sphere of Christ, in the greenhouse of Christ, in the soil of Christ, there are glorious riches. Riches that the psalmist described as a portion, inheritance, and reward. As Asaph came to grips with the reality of suffering, turned and and said this, Whom have I in heaven but thee, and besides thee I desire nothing. He understood that God was his greatest good. And this is what brings assurance to our hearts and bolsters our faith, is the riches of the glory of Christ in the gospel. So look at Colossians 1.27. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery. What is this mystery? Which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. How amazing. He's just got done in chapter 1 telling us that the fullness of deity dwells in Christ. That all things have been created by Him and for Him, both the invisible and the visible. Brothers and sisters, that means there's nothing in this world that can compare to the glory of Jesus Christ. It is our fleshly hearts that deceive us into thinking so. And so Paul says, the greatest glory, the riches of the glory is that you have Christ. And who is Christ? The fullness of deity. And you get Him. Therefore, he's the, verse 27, the the hope of glory. So what does Paul do? Him we proclaim. Warning everyone, teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. So warning when I'm turning away from the glories of Christ. Teaching to commend the glories of Christ. This is personal teaching. This is teaching that you and I proclaim to ourselves in the midst of our struggles. This is communication and proclamation we present to one another because we often put on the lens of human thinking. And the frustration arises, and the discouragement arises, and we say, brother, sister, here's the lens of the gospel. Look to Christ. Notice how it bolsters Paul in toil and struggle. Verse 29, for this I toil, struggling with all his energy, that he powerfully works within me. By the way, I'd call that gospel energy. I just want to stop there for a moment. In chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, he talks about this, this mighty strength of God that sustains us and brings patience and endurance and joy. If you had time to look at verse 9 and 10 of chapter 1, and you ask, well, what kind of energy is this? Is this energy I plug into the outlet and get zapped or tell my kids, don't put your tongue in there? You know, as they're growing up, of course they want to try it and do it. I told you, not that kind of energy. This is an energy of perspective. You imagine you being in a difficult... Well, let me, be, let me step back a little bit here. I think of uh, Val's pumpkin patch. You know, and you're going through those, those cornfields through maize. And you get lost. You lose perspective. And as a child, that becomes very alarming. Now, a parent can sneak a peek and figure things out. Not the child. So it helps when the parent says, let me give you perspective. And it provides an exuberance and joy and endurance because you know where the turns are at and how to get out. Nothing's changed perspectives changed the gospel brings perspective in midst of the maze of the trials that god's bringing our way to remind us that all things are ultimately for christ jesus and all meaning marriage relationships work suffering will find their resolution in the proclamation of christ's glory and we need to get that and when we do that provides great joy nourishment, sustenance, circumstances haven't changed, perspective has. He says, this is why we proclaim Christ. This is why we can toil and struggle. Look at 2, verse 2 of Colossians. That their hearts may be encouraged. See that? There's labor, there's struggling that's going on, but there's encouragement. See the love being knit together in love. He talked about this faith in Christ that produces love for one another. 
to reach all the riches of, here's assurance, have hope, full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. So here we are in the maze of life, and the world is throwing over its plausible arguments and theories and saying, here's its meaning. And we try for a while to make the turns based upon the world's plausible arguments, and we find ourselves disoriented and confused because we can't find ultimate meaning in some psychologist or theorist or doctor or professional. We need someone who's omnipresent, all-knowing, who's established meaning himself. We need Christ in whom all the wisdom and knowledge dwells. So Paul says we need the gospel to ground your faith in Christ. This faith is a loving, living, confident faith. Now, How do we get this gospel? Well, I want to focus there again on chapter 1, verse 4. In Christ. Faith in Christ. If we could take a real quick tour of these in him statements. Look with me at chapter 2, verse 9. Again, I told you we're going to do kind of a broad overview and then come back. I want to see the book as a whole. At the same time, then understand Paul's arguments. So we're focusing on, we've seen the faith as a loving, living, confident faith because of the riches of Christ. How do we get that? That's the question we're asking. He says it's found in Christ. 2.9. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you've been filled in him who is the head over all rule and authority. So in him the fullness of deity. How do I get God? In Christ. He's not done. Verse 11. In him also you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands. Notice he said in him. By putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ uses... A pictorial illustration of circumcision described the work of Christ on the cross. Verse 12, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Verse 13, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Chapter 3, verse 1. If then you've been raised with Christ, verse 3, you've died and your life is hidden with Christ. Verse 4, when Christ who is your life, this is the secret of the gospel. In fact, this is Paul's shorthand for the gospel. In him, in Christ. Is he to say that in Christ is to say you are incorporated or connected to all of Christ. Both his person, he's God, Man, that he's our representative and his work. The Bible, Colossians particularly, describes it this way. We were dead. We had nothing to offer him. God in eternity past has secured salvation in the Son. And in the fullness of time, Christ Jesus came down to act as our representative. He came down as the God-man to depend upon God fully and completely because we do not. To depend upon God in prayer because we do not. To depend upon God's word because we do not. And then he went, his obedience took him all the way to the cross where he took the curse for our disobedience, our law breaking. He took it upon himself and received the wrath of God. And God was so pleased with his son. He said, this is my son whom I'm fully pleased. He raised his son and exalted his son at his right hand. Where were you and I? Dead. Christ acting on our behalf. The fullness of God dwelling in Him secured our salvation by obeying when we could not, by receiving the wrath when we could not, by raising again when we could not, by being exalted, accepted at the Father's right hand. And Scripture now points us to Christ and says, that's where you are seated. You are in Him with God. The world says, here's your conflicts, here's your hope. And these promises, here's your identity, here's self-completion, here's self-esteem, here's self-fulfillment. And the scriptures say, no, but your identity is already seated at God's right hand in your representative Christ. 
That's where faith blossoms and grows. When we deny our righteousness, our self-righteousness, and we trust in Christ's righteousness for us. When we deny any hopes of resurrecting ourselves, we look at Christ's resurrection for us. We look at any hope of paying penance for our sin, and we look at Christ's sacrifice who paid it all fully, completely, and finished. Any hope of raising ourselves and exalting ourselves to God's right hand to be accepted, we look at ourselves in despair and we hope in Christ who has already done it. And there in faith blossoms and grows. And our flesh will compete with that identity and will need the gospel again and again and again. The flesh will say, but your spouse isn't doing what they're expected to do. And the gospel will visit our hearts and say, but I owe Christ much more and he paid the punishment. How could I hold anything against the spouse? As the master, the steward, if you remember Christ's parables, been forgiven so much, how can we not forgive little? The gospel revisits our hearts. Now, I told you I would spend most of my time on the first point. The gospel secures faith in Christ. We've seen a glorious, rich Savior in whom all the fullness of deity dwells. That's why we can say that faith is trusting and treasuring, savoring and surrendering, beholding and believing. We believe, but we see the value of Christ, and that is what turns us from the flesh. The flesh cannot raise a great enough Savior to compete with our affections. The gospel raises up a glorious grand Savior. It turns us from our sin to love Christ and to treasure Him. That's where our freedom is. Well, we'll blast through the next four. Love secures love for Christ's church. He says in verse 4 of chapter 1, going back there with me. And of the love that you have for all the saints. Again, that love grows in the sphere of Christ Jesus. It is a love for all the saints. The Bible describes faith as that which works through love, Galatians 5, 6. Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. The danger for us is that we want to focus on the obedience. Obedience is helpful. It shows us our frailty, our sinfulness. So we say here, Scripture calls us to obedience, but that's not where the motivation is. Duty is not strong enough to compel our affections and our obedience. It's found in faith in Christ. And that's where the gospel acts. It promotes Christ's greatness to our hearts, wins our affections, love then delights to obey. I think often we are in the business of trying to compel obedience, maybe through memorization, maybe through some legalistic motivation, restraint, prison bars. But this is the gospel that infuels love for Christ, which brings about a love for obedience. This is why when we tend to issues in the church or in the family, and there are family issues, descriptive of chapter 3, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk, lying, a need for humility, meekness, patience, kindness. Paul doesn't start there. He starts with the gospel. So in the same way, when we see issues of the flesh in our families, we want to pull our kids aside and say, yes, God calls for obedience. Have you found how your heart responds in disobedience? Have you found that obedience is a very difficult thing? The power is not found in mustering yourself up. The power is found in the gospel that promotes Christ. That is, Christ has fulfilled our obedience. He was not angry. He was not discontent and grumbling. He was perfectly satisfied with his father. Why did he do that for us? And we find great rest as we rest in a great savior who loved perfectly and obeyed perfectly. This is the kind of gospel love that Paul is driving at when he gets to chapter 3. So you say, well, I'm struggling with love for the saints. I'm struggling with love for my spouse. I'm struggling with love for my family or love for a coworker. What do we need? The gospel? There's a second fundamental, gospel fundamental, that characterizes the ministry of the gospel. It secures hope in Christ's work. So first, faith is grounded in Christ. It grows in Christ. Then securing a love for one another which is an outflow of faith in Christ. 
And then it moves us to a hope that is laid up for you in heaven, verse 5. Now, what's interesting about verse 5 is he says, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. He's tying this faith and love back to the foundation of this hope. That's troubling for us in the sense that we often think of hope in a subjective sense. My hope. But this is used in an objective sense. If you look at chapter 1, verse 27, you'll see that this hope is described as that which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So this hope is very objective. It is Jesus Christ. There's another aspect that describes its objectiveness, and that is that it's passive. Again, in Colossians 1.5, it is a hope that has been laid up for you in heaven. It's not describing your subjective hope, but the objective hope, we're going to say, is Christ, according to verse 27, that has been laid up, already laid up for you in heaven. What is he getting at? He's describing Christ who's already accomplished the saving work and has sat down at the Father's right hand. And this is where our greatest confidence is. Our greatest hope is in the fact that Christ is our hope and has already secured our salvation. Peter O'Brien writes this in his Colossians commentary. He says that this hope already lies prepared for them in the heavens. Their hope is kept for them in its right place. In heaven where no power, human or otherwise, can touch it. Though now hidden from men's view, that hope, which is centered on Christ himself, will finally be revealed when he is revealed. You see, this is a direct attack on the false gospels of the world that come and visit us and promote hope for our conflicts, hope for our trials, hope for our sufferings. Invite us to cast our faith on the promises of men. And the scripture, the gospel comes and visits us, verse 6, which has come to you, and it casts our hope upon the hope which is already secured in heaven. Raises us above the circumstances to hope in him. Fourthly, the gospel secures truth in Christ's word. It secured faith in Christ, a love for Christ's church, and hope in Christ's work. It secures truth in Christ's word. Look with me, verse 5. In the middle there. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel. In one sense, we can say that the truth of God's word reveals the gospel from Genesis to Revelation. As you open up the pages of Scripture, you're not necessarily going to find Christ underneath every rock, every proverbial rock of the Bible. But the storyline of Scripture runs us as a thread to the cross. It runs us to the person and work of Jesus Christ. In Luke 24, Jesus said that the law, the prophets, and the Psalms testify of him. So as we open Scripture and we see the promises to Abraham, we see the promises of Christ, or to David in the midst of his adultery, we see the promises of Jesus Christ, and we're run as the reader to consider Christ and his sufficiency. And so in that sense, the word of the truth, the gospel, the word is the truth that proclaims to us the gospel. But there's another sense in which the word is the truth. We can say it in this sense, that the gospel is God's truth. The gospel is God's revelation of truth. Paul in Colossians 2 belabors the fact that in him, in Christ Jesus, all the fullness of deity dwells that in him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, that Christ is the sum of all things, that Christ in him, everything has been made, and it is for him, for his glory. So if we're going to have a right interpretation of life, period, we must understand Christ, because he's the sum of all things. He's the truth. You may ask, well, where do I turn to know the living God? You must turn to Christ. Where will you turn to find the meaning of humanity? You must turn to look at Jesus Christ. Where will you turn to find the meaning of relationships, for marriage, for family, for work? You must turn to Christ. Where will you turn to find the meaning and purpose of life? Christ. Where will I turn to find the meaning of the, 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 the importance or how God is using suffering and trials in our life? You must look to Christ Jesus. 
because in him is the truth. So again, brothers and sisters, we need the gospel. We need the gospel to secure faith in Christ, love for Christ's church, hope in Christ's work, and to secure truth in Christ's word. Because there it is, is his truth. And it helps us to understand the meaning of life is found in Jesus Christ. Lastly, fifthly, the gospel secures fruit in Christ's ministry. Fruit in Christ's ministry. Look at verse 6 with me. The gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and growing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf. Notice the fruitfulness of the gospel. Verse 6, it's come to you. This personal visitation, it's almost personified, and we, we again would note that because of the Spirit's ministry that brings the gospel to our hearts. It does this work in the whole world. It's bearing fruit and growing, but then he personalizes it, as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth. And that is the real issue in it. We must hear it and understand it. We must be able to behold the Christ of the gospel. We must see his person and his work. It bears fruit. It controls the life, controls the walk. We may say, in the circumstances of life that God brings our way, do we get the gospel? Do we get the gospel? Do we understand it? As we begin to take the gospel and see our need for the gospel, as we sin, we, we see our sinfulness and we see the holiness of God, and the gospel promotes the greatness of Christ and the greatness of the cross and our need for the cross. We begin to get the gospel. And then we enter another phase of our life, some suffering, some challenge, some difficulty, some conflict, and we once again are confronted with our sin and we see the holiness of God, but we're reminded of Jesus Christ who stood in our place and obeyed perfectly for us. And the more we see the holiness of God and of our sin, we see the glory of Christ's obedience and the glory of his cross work. And we boast in him and he bears fruit in our life. This last week, one of my children came to me and said this. It kind of took me off guard. Daddy, how do I deal with my pride? How do I deal with my pride? What are you going to say? Just quit being prideful. What are we going to do? Boast of the fact that I quit being prideful and I'm prideful again. That's what moralism does. No, I responded, it's amazing how everything turns around the simplicity of the gospel. The gospel sheds light upon the gravity of my sin. There at the cross of Christ, I see that I, in the secret of my heart, am a God murderer. Now, does that boast my pride? The God who is glorious, who is eternal, who is infinite, the God that Adam and Eve could have walked with for eternity and enjoyed the fellowship of, the God that we turn away from, who we suppress in our unrighteousness, and we worship and serve the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever, amen. We would rather turn to the garbage dump of the world and play in its filth than glory in the splendor of the sunset of Christ. I'm a God murderer. And this tax my pride when I look at the cross in this way as God has exposed Chris's sin. But I see there at the gospel that Christ stepped in my place and fought my pride by humbling himself and accomplishing full dependence upon the Father for me. And then he took the undiluted wrath of God that I deserve, the eternal wrath that I deserve for my pride, and he took it upon himself, that eternal weight of judgment, not just for me, but for all those who saved for eternity. That breaks us down. There is no room for boasting. We say, I get God, and he's a glorious Savior, and I can spend eternity with him. We worship him. This is the ministry of the gospel to our hearts. I'd like to close by reading from John Owen, who commends in the midst of our sinfulness a glorious Christ. 
He says this. We'll close with this. I'll pray and we'll invite the music team to close our service. How glorious is the Lord Christ on this account in the eyes of believers. When Adam sinned and thereby eternally, according to the sanction of the law, ruined himself and all his posterity, he stood ashamed, afraid, trembling as one ready to perish forever under the displeasure of God. Death was that which he had deserved and immediate death was that which he looked for. And in this state, the Lord Christ and the promise comes to him and says, Poor creature, how woeful is your condition, how deformed is your appearance. What has become of the beauty of the glory of that image of God in which you were created? How have you taken on you the monstrous shape and image of Satan? And yet your present misery, your entrance into dust and darkness is no way to be compared with what is to ensue. Eternal distress lies at the door. But yet look up once more and behold me, that you may have some glimpse of what is in the designs of infinite wisdom, love, and grace. Come forth from your vain shelter, your hiding place, and I will put myself into your condition. I will undergo and bear that burden of guilt and punishment, which would sink you eternally into the bottom of hell. I will pay that which I never took and be made temporally a curse for you, that you may attain to eternal blessedness. Lord, Show us Christ in each wave of suffering and trial that passes through your good hand. Show us our self-sufficiency and self-trust in our attitudes that are expressed that are disobedient to you. Show us where we have trusted in false promises, false hopes, false love, a false gospel. Commend to us Christ Jesus and the glories of the gospel that we may once again turn from trusting ourselves to grow in the vibrancy of Jesus Christ and the nourishment, strength, and sustenance that he provides in himself. Lord, bring the gospel to our hearts each day. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.